the last uh, probably 10 years, uh, there's been a lot of uh, research effort uh, looking at how much human edible protein a cow can produce compared to how much human edible protein a cow consumes. And when you go through the rations with higher levels of the, these co-product feeds, it's very common that cows are producing two and a half to three times more human edible protein in the milk than they're consuming. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. SmaxTech. Get insights from inside your cows with SmaxTech for higher herd health and profitability. Our Yeast 40. Ruminal and intestinal double modulation by ICC Animal Nutrition. Ivonic Animal Nutrition. We are sciencing the global food challenge. Adiseo USA. Producers of SmartMimeM and MilkPay.com. Xzealot. A novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. Typical fresh cow incidence of clinical hypocalcemia is 3 to 6%, while subclinical hypocalcemia affects 50% or more mature cows. Based on cutting-edge research, Exelete offers a new approach that is build effective and the ZDUs. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. Good morning and welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show. Uh, this is Mark Thomas from Dairy Health and Management Services. And a uh, pleasure this morning to have Dr. Larry Chase uh, with us. Larry, good morning. Good morning, Mark. Uh, so, uh, gee, I guess, uh, Larry, uh, I was an undergrad at Cornell from 89 to 93 and then went up to the vet school till, till 97. So, uh, I, I guess in terms of our primary introduction, it's, it's many, many years ago. Right. Uh, and, and obviously we've had the opportunity over this time, uh, uh, uh a common, uh, program that you guys did uh, that I recall well and in our area was the uh, the road show uh, right. you know t- Tom and Tom and Larry Tom Overton and Larry uh, you know the annual road show going around the state and, and uh, uh, sharing you know what's new what's what's current uh, what do we need to think about and, and those topics varied I recall you know when when the economy was was terrible it was okay how do we tighten the belt and and get through this and then when things were better okay what what are the the new and exciting technologies. So, uh, Larry, great to to see you and, and connect again. Uh, can you give the uh, listeners a little bit about your your background and and your very long uh, and successful career? Thanks for inviting me to be on the podcast, and hopefully, we'll share some information that'll be of value to you. Uh, I'm a native of Ohio. I got my degrees at the Ohio State University, North Carolina State University, and Penn State University came to Cornell in 1975 with an extension research appointment and really focused on about three things during my time at Cornell. Phosphorus levels and rations, higher forage rations, and lower protein rations. 
And uh, as Mark said, we did a lot of road shows with the in- industry people. I retired uh, 2015, still do some consulting, um, currently working with a cooperative in Japan. So it, it still keeps the brain going a little bit. Each year I do a little bit less of this, but uh, I still have to do enough to keep my brain going. Excellent. Excellent, Larry. Yeah, and certainly as I, as I look back on, you know, uh, the, 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 the information you've provided to the industry, I think your work with, with phosphorus, you know, instrumental, right. And, and, uh, thankfully I think in most regions, more historical now, we still do run into in some regions and, and different parts of the world, the thought that, you know, phosphorus is, is very important for reproductive performance and, and over supplementing phosphorus, obviously all the environmental aspects, but certainly, you know, you and, and, and your, team at Cornell were certainly instrumental in bringing that data to the forefront. Um, Would you say that in most regions of the world that that it's, that's not a question anymore or does it still come up? It still comes up in certain areas, but I think overall it's people have gone to some lower levels than they used to feed and found that it does not impair reproduction. If you're still meeting requirements, you're just decreasing the size of the safety factor. Excellent. And then obviously the environmental control, uh, that that's uh, become, you know, really important in that area. Right. Yeah. So um, in, in terms of, uh, you know, low protein diets, again, uh, I can think back of when I first started doing some nutrition work with, with, with Pete Ostrom and, as my mentor and at, at the vet clinic in northern New York. Uh, you know, using Spartan and, and balancing for crude protein and, and you know, now our ability to, uh, you know, obviously ME, MP is nothing new, but but amino acid balancing and, and uh, you know, what's next for the future. So can, can you give a little background and, and, you know, obviously where you started there, but then also your experiences before we started recording here, we connected a little bit about, you know, various regions of the, of either the U.S. or internationally where, uh, either different levels of forage or, or protein. Obviously, byproduct availability can really uh, change what, what the ration looks like. Right. Well, I think what we should do is, is talk about lower protein, not low protein. Because I think people, when you say low, they get scared. But if you say lower, it's, it's more acceptable because you're saying, if I can go down one or two units, that's really progress. And I think the reason we're interested in this, number of reasons, the first one is profitability. Protein is the most expensive part of the purchase feed program. So if we can lower the purchase feed cost, still maintain our productivity, uh, that has a real economic benefit for the, for the dairy producer. Because we're improving the efficiency of using nitrogen in the cow, so we don't need quite as much nitrogen or protein. The other area that's really important is the environmental area because we all know that if we have excess nitrogen going into a cow, we get excess nitrogen coming out the back. That potentially can go either to ammonia, into the air and air quality problems, or it can get into the water and run off and contaminate water supplies or be involved in the algae blooms that we see in some of the lakes at times. And so I think those are the key reasons we're interested in. Can we make more money? Can we be more environmentally friendly? 
uh, with our dairy production system. And that's certainly a, w- a win-win, obviously, uh, on both aspects. Right. If the dairyman doesn't, if both sides don't win, it's going to be a problem for us. But in most cases, when we've done this on farms, it's always a win-win for for both the sides of the equation. And I can give a couple examples of research a little bit later as we get into the program more. As uh, you know, you work with uh, some of your 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 clients and, and obviously uh, advising other nutritionists uh, over many years, you know, what are some of the, uh, I guess, pitfalls to avoid, if you will, in terms of, of that approach? Uh, obviously, uh, you know, there's still in certain markets that focus on, on milk urea nitrogen. And, uh, you know, we, we've seen the acceptable or, or, or norm values change quite a bit, but uh, we actually sometimes hear now, folks concerned that, that MUNs are too low. And I guess, uh, so, you know, trying to uh, discuss some of the efficiency factors of, you know, when you hit that, that perfect room and balance, you know, and, the, and everything's working well, you, you need some safety factor margin in there, but can you give us some, some of the practical aspects of, of ration balancing in, in terms of lower protein? Well, actually, what we have to talk a little bit about the difference between crude protein and metabolizable protein. Uh, crude protein is what people are comfortable with, but it's been shown that crude protein is very poorly related to the level of milk production in the herd. Metabolizable protein is much more better related to predicting milk production Metabolizable protein is a combination of the amount of protein produced in the rumen by the microbes plus the amount of protein in the bypass protein that gets to the small intestine. And the 2001 Dairy NRC suggested that we move to balancing rations on metabolizable protein. And since that time, there have been quite a few uh, ration programs that do use metabolizable protein. Um, and it's becoming more common by our consultants in feed industry that they're balancing on metabolizable protein. But at the farm level, uh, we're still talking about crude protein because that's what the farmers understand. So I think as we move through this uh, podcast this morning, we'll talk a lot about crude protein, but behind it, we're always balancing these rations on metabolizable protein to make sure that's met because we go low protein and we're deficient on metabolizable protein or amino acids, we're going to knock production. And that's the worst thing you could do a dairy farm is lower his milk production. Uh, so what we've found from experience, if we balance metabolizable protein, pay attention to amino acids, we can go to levels of uh, protein in high producing herds you know, less than 16%, some less than 15 and even a few herds at 14 But a lot of things have to be put together in terms of balancing, daily consistency of management, and minimizing variation in, in feed uh, quality to make the system work to go to the really, really lower levels. And Larry, I think, you know, from our experience, that's a, a great point that uh, you know, the, all the other aspects of feeding management, consistency, delivery, uh, you know, proper mixing, uh, consistency and forage quality, uh, 
uh, you know, I, over the years, I, I've uh, at times said, you know, you don't you don't know, need to worry about balancing for amino acids. You need to worry about having feed in front of the cows consistently and and uh, you know uh, uh, enough refusal. So. I guess as you work through, uh, you know, de uh, developing, formulating these rations and all the things that go into that formulation from the feeding management side, um, you know, as you said, you get to those lower levels. Obviously, you're needing to uh, use likely some uh, bypass amino acids. Uh, can, can you give some uh, background on on that process in terms of as you're going lower and then the need to use different products, obviously bypass soy products, uh, bypass amino acids and so forth. Yeah. As we, as we adjust these rations, the first thing we want to do is maximize rumen fermentation and produce as much microbial protein as possible because that microbial protein produced in the rumen is about 65% crude protein on a dry matter basis. And it has an excellent balance of amino acids, especially methionine and lysine. And when it gets to the intestine, it's a high bypass and a highly available source of uh, protein. So if I can shift and grow a little bit more microbial protein in the rumen, I don't need to buy quite as much of, say, bypass soy product or in some areas of the world, blood meal but some areas can't use blood, obviously. So the first thing we want to do is maximize rumen fermentation. If I can feed corn or barley and make protein, that's a lot better than buying the bypass. You're always going to need some of the bypass soy sources, probably, and potentially some amino acids, but we don't want to go there first. We want to do the rumen first, make sure that rumen is working maximize microbial protein, and we should be able to get more than half of our total metabolizable protein need produced in the rumen by the bugs, and that helps us both uh, economically and uh, rumen health. Excellent, and, you know, I certainly re recall um, well uh, in my transition of, of going from the, uh, you know, early days of, of the Cornell model, CNCPS, uh, uh, from Spartan and, and, you know, being intrigued to, to what extent I could make more MP allowable milk by feeding more, like you said, starch, uh, uh, corn, barley, what have you. So, uh, you know, th those are not new concepts now, but I think for some of our listeners who are maybe day-to-day -day not balancing rations, a really important concept of feeding the rumen and potentially to have more MP, you don't need to feed more protein. You need to feed more energy. Right. So, I mean, I think the progression is maximize the rumen to get the microbial protein as, as, as good as you can. Then bring in some of the high-quality bypass soy sources. And then after that, there's still is a potential then you may bring in some uh, amino acids. So, I think you want to do it in that sequence. There's no use going towards the amino acids until we have those other two pieces under control in terms of the logic and uh, cost and so on. And Larry, that, yeah, that makes uh, obviously a lot of sense to, to go through that pr uh, process, especially given the, the cost of some of those products. You know, the, the, those are obviously high-end, uh, high-cost ingredients. Would you say that based on your experience, you, you mentioned working 
you know, with the group in Japan and obviously have many years of, of, of traveling, uh, not only throughout the U.S., but the world. Are there rations that are, are uh, better suited in terms of different forage formulations or higher forage uh, versus lower forage that uh, give you more ability to manipulate uh, these lower protein diets? Or would you say that in your experience that you know, a range of diets can, can successfully be managed as such? I think we can, do, we can use the concept of lower protein across forage types and forage levels, but obviously you do need enough room in the ration to provide some uh, room and available carbohydrates to stimulate that microbial protein production and growth. So uh, I think across forages and levels, we can do lower protein. We may not be as low in one system as another, but we can be lower than we were. And so that's a step in the right direction. And then from the practical aspect in, in, in the process of lowering uh, protein, and obviously you have the, the paper ration, but what other metrics are you using? Obviously milk production um, would be great to chat a little bit about components there because depending on the markets, especially, uh, you know, uh, protein and, and fat levels uh, in, in, in most of the U.S. or all the U.S., as compared to maybe other regions of the world. And then, um, again, getting back to that question, uh, you know, the ideal mercury and nitrogen uh, level to, to yeah. help, help in that process of, you know, looking at all your parameters and, okay, we, we've, we've hit the, the sweet spot, so to speak. Yeah, at the farm level, obviously, you, you can look at the milk production, you look at your components, your fat protein, but the best monitor we really have that's simple is milk urea nitrogen, and at least in the U.S., most of our dairymen get that pretty routinely from their uh, dairy processor. And what we've come up with in New York in our precision feed management program, our guideline is we'd like to have the milk urea nitrogens between 8 to 12 milligrams per hundred, uh, or per hundred. And so... We, we see some herds gunning down six or seven, and they maybe eight can work that okay. I think if you get lower than six or seven in many herds, that's a, a scary one. So we're bracketing, say, eight to 12, and I think that's a reasonable uh, range that most of our herds can hit and still be efficient and have good reproduction and not be compromising uh, anything on the animal. Excellent. I, gu I guess those are, so, uh, you know, the ranges that we would uh, aim for certainly also. So, uh, and likewise, you know, those, those really low levels, perhaps, uh, perhaps you've, you've hit that sweet spot, but you, you there's no uh, margin of error, right? There's no, no wiggle room right. there. Uh, if you get into some uh, different quality forage, what have you. I think Mike Van Hamburg would say, if you get lower than six, you're probably, starving the rumen or there's some something that uh, you're compromising the system so you know that range of whether it's seven or eight at the bottom is probably debatable but uh, much lower than that I think we're taking a risk of uh, causing some challenges or losing some productivity we chatted also a little bit about uh, uh, forage percentage and rations and and uh, you know lower uh, crude protein rations and then higher forage rations. So obviously the key to that is, is, you know, excellent, excellent 
quality, storage, particle size, all those things that our listeners are well aware of. But um, what are some of your experiences in terms of, you know, maximizing forage utilization, uh, both, the, you know, the, the practical aspect and then obviously the, the economics? Practical aspect, I think, is in terms of the forage quality, we need a system where we have a consistent supply of a highly digestible forage for the animals. That's the key to, to using a higher forage ration. And there's a lot of debate about what levels and so on, but, you know, we, we can we see herds and um, getting up to 65 70% forage on corn silage-based rations. And that's mainly northeast, midwest-type herds. Actually, the highest herd in the United States, which is about 44,000 pounds of milk per cow, they run between 63 and 68% forage routinely. But forage quality is, consistency is just top-notch. And daily management, top-notch. So whenever you push the envelope on any of these nutrients or forage, if you don't have quality and consistency and minimize variability, you're opening the door to risk and a lot of problems. So it takes a lot of good daily management uh, plus consistency of feed quality to make, to really push the envelope on all these systems. And Larry, with, uh, you know, over the years, the uh, increased use of uh, BMR, different hybrids, uh, higher digestibility uh, forages, uh, lower lignin alfalfa, you know, can you give some comments there of, of just further maximizing the ability to to really uh, uh, increase forage levels? Well, again, I think all you're doing there is you've just got a forage that's more digestible, which means the animal gets more nutrients in the rumen out of that forage per unit of forage you're feeding. And so that, since it's more digestible in the rumen, its rate of passage is a little bit higher, so we can get more into that rumen in a given period of time. So, like BMR consistently, if you look at all the literature, it generally will, you know, improve milk production four, five, six pounds potentially. Um, the low lignin alfalfas have the potential to do that. There's not quite as much data there, uh, but all we're doing is getting more quality forage through the rumen in a certain period of time. And that's when we can use things like the, the indigestibility of the forage or the, in, or the nutrient digestibility as our indexes of forage quality. In terms of, uh, you know, I, I always try to remind sometimes our producers when uh, perhaps there's some inventory issues and we're being pushed to feed lower forage rations and i think i mentioned before we hopped on you know here in 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 uh, mexico we're accustomed to in, in some cases feeding uh, rations that are that are quite low forage given availability or forage quality uh you know sometimes into the the low 30s um and we can do that successfully but but carefully but i think you know not forgetting that we're feeding ruminants these are cows they have a forage requirement so I guess a little bit in the discussion of, you know, uh, not feeding low protein, but lower protein, uh, 
on the other end, there's no magic number. How low is too low? But what are some of your experiences in, in other parts of the country compared to the Northeast of, you know, the feeding lower forage rations? Well, if you look at if the two areas that probably in the U.S. have generally lower rations are the Southeast, like Florida, and the, the Western part, like California. And if you look at the California dairies, for example, a lot of the, those dairies buy in uh, much of their alfalfa, and alfalfa can be expensive. Plus, in California, they have a lot of very good byproduct feeds that are available at relatively reasonable cost. So, in many cases, it's to their economic advantage to feed a little bit less forage and take more advantage of the, uh, the co-product or byproduct feeds. And so quite often you'll see the California rations, many of them be, you know, 35, 40% forage. And they're making that work very well because they're balancing with the others. The key thing on the low forage ration you can't do, you can't feed high level of the starch with a low forage ration or you'll tip that rumen environment uh, and drop the rumen pH and get into some potential acidosis situation. So you have to be a little careful on the starch levels uh, with the lower forage rations. But uh, properly managed, we some of those California herds make a lot of milk. Some of the Florida herds make quite a bit of milk. And we, if you go to like to uh, some of the, like Israel, they tend to feed rations that are 30 to 40% forage, a lot of uh, co-product feeds because the alfalfa is expensive and they've got the highest uh, average milk production of any country in the world. So, but again, it's just management uh, to make this, this whole system work. So many of the things we talk about in nutrition are really, really interesting, but management is such a big factor that can override uh, many of the principles that we keep talking about. And that would be our experience here in Mexico, Larry. You know, you know most most rations are in, in that lower range that you're, you're mentioning. And uh, again, you know, uh, moderate starch rations, uh, feeding more sugars, and, and uh, obviously the consistency, the quality, all the all the other aspects that would go into uh, reducing a, a, a subclinical acidosis risk for certain. Based on your um, your, your comment and, and, and some of the uh, background that you provided to us uh, in terms of uh, uh, the, the role of dairy cattle in, in producing human edible protein, uh, you know, so dairy cattle nutrition, I, I, I guess recently uh, driven a little bit by, by my, my sister who, who really pays attention to her nutrition, I've, I've been paying more attention to my, my own macros and I realize it's really hard for me to meet my protein requirement in a day that that's being recommended 160 grams of protein is not easy for me to consume uh, salmon, tuna, a uh, steak, uh, chicken. So one, it's making me feel good that I can eat more, but, but I'm realizing that it's, it's not an easy task to, to, to consume that much protein in a day. And that's what's, what's uh, for my age and, and, and activity and so forth, the recommendation. So I, I guess uh, along those lines, um, interested on, on some of the things that that uh, you're you're working in uh, in that area. In the last uh, probably ten years, uh, there's been a lot of uh, research effort uh, looking at how much 
human edible protein a cow can produce compared to how much human edible protein a cow consumes. And when you go through the rations with higher levels of the, these co-product feeds, it's very common that cows are producing two and a half to three times more human edible protein in the milk than they're consuming. And so that's really a, a great advantage uh, for the industry and it, it, a good reason to use those co-products. And I think most consumers aren't aware that cows have the ability to make that conversion. And uh, that's really fantastic news for the industry to, to tell people that we're taking a feed that's not usable by you or I, and we're ending up with this human ed- high-quality human edible protein, milk or meat, uh, that fits right into our diet. So I think it's a story that's still developing, but it's something we need to be talking about more with our consumer friends uh, as to how this cow's really helping sustainability of, of this whole system. Because the option is landfill these, and that wouldn't be very good. You know, that, that's a great point, Larry, and I think we, we, we talk uh, lots, you know, as we as we travel to conferences or, or you know, just sit next to someone randomly in the air, airplane or, or what have you, different uh, folks that are not within the industry, the importance of delivering that message, right, that, uh, you know, there's, there's still folks who think that, uh, you know, the use of uh, land for, for feeding cattle is, is not good use of that land and, and so forth. And, you know, that's a whole nother podcast, right? But right. I think that's a, 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 you know, really important point. And we're, we're not going to, I guess, uh, debate a plant-based diet, but I guess my, my, my little short trial here of, of keeping track of macros has made me also realize, gee, I don't know how I would begin to do that eating a plant-based diet. I, if I can't do it with, with fish, chicken, and, and beef, Gosh, what you know? I, I would be uh, well stuffed on lentils to to, to try to make it right. there. <laughs> right. And I think the other thing on the lower protein, we have to look at some economics. And uh, I'll just give one example of a a research trial to give you an index. Uh, a few years ago, Delaware County Cooperative Extension in New York got a grant uh, to look at some herds in the upper. Susquehanna watershed, which feeds Chesapeake Bay, to see what we could do to lower nitrogen and phosphorus. So we we had uh, we used eight herds over a three-year period of time. There were four feed companies involved and two consultants feeding these herds. And what re- and we let the rations were formulated by the uh, feed industry person working with the herd in consult consultation with our our uh, Cornell group and the Delaware County group. So we'd talk about it. If they'd agree to do this or that, they would adjust the rations. So we wanted the feed industry people to be heavily involved in the project. What really happened, in, in simple terms, the average protein went from 17.5% to 15.8% over that three-year period in those herds. Milk production per cow varied a pound or two, but it didn't really change at all. And the really important thing is income over purchase feed cost went up $137 per cow per year. And we reduced nitrogen in manure by 15%. So here's a good example, and we've done this a number of times in herds. We can lower the protein 
we can improve profitability and we can decrease the environmental impact all at the same time. So that's just one quick, simple example of what this can mean to a dairyman in terms of economics. Obviously, uh, you know, a great win-win as we uh, start discussing more about the environmental uh, aspects, the reduction of, of methane production and, you know, additives that are available and so forth. I think uh, where where's the economic return? So we can feed uh, a feed additive perhaps and reduce methane production, but then where is the win for the dairy producer? If that doesn't make more milk or make uh, uh, improved confer- conversion, you know, wh- where where is the money going to come from to pay for such an additive? As opposed to these strategies of feeding more forage, uh, lowering protein, having that effect, you know, phosphorus also as we go back to that, but I think mo- you right. know, most herds are in that region. Um, the, the, the same level or maybe a greater impact on the carbon footprint uh, that are then also a win-win uh, in terms of production and, and profitability. Yeah, we've, we've done some work in carbon footprint too to another project. And uh, if we put together best management practices for both the feeding the cow and manure management uh, in this scenario that we uh, did with the uh, whole farm uh, analysis that Dr. Al Rotz at Penn, at Penn State did it. Uh, we could take the carbon footprint from one unit of carbon equivalent per kilogram of milk down to 0.6. So that's a, a pretty dramatic drop uh, by implementing both feed management and manure management practices on on a dairy farm, those are those are good. Those are possibilities out there that we can we can do. It's just getting uh, all of this stuff put together and implemented correctly, and and so on. Yeah, Daryl Knightum and, and Caitlin Briggs uh, uh, recently presented uh, at the uh, bovine practitioners meeting. Uh, you know, just modeling uh, milk production and also cow longevity, and you know the the uh, you know, looking at one cow, if you will, the output of that one cow and uh, obviously, you know, the efficiency of higher milk production, a, a lower carbon footprint and, and the importance of um, optimizing milk production. Always careful about maximizing, especially with quotas now and, um, and supply management, but optimizing milk production and obviously striving for that um, uh, most uh, maximum income over feed cost. Yep. It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Bergen Schmidt, your partner for improving animal performance. AB Vista, feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. Fibro Animal Health Corporation, healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. DSM Ferminiche. Mycotoxins can threaten cattle performance. DSM Ferminiche offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Ivonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. 
Ivonics focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers. Larry, as we um, wrap up um, our, our discussion here this morning, there's a few questions that uh, we, we generally uh, ask our uh, our uh, presenters. And uh, one is, uh, as you as you look with the herds and you have many years of experience and, and, and you know, throughout the world of what sets aside the uh, the progressive producer. And I think I, I like to say, you know, who has longevity in the industry, right? The, the herds that are going to be, that have, you know, made it this, this long and are uh, either themselves or the, the generation family, the business will continue. You know, what, what are some of the characteristics of those folks that really set them apart? I think a key thing is they have an attention to detail and consistency of management, uh, across these herds, they really and they you know all of our dairymen want to do a good job. These people really want to do a good job for both the, themselves and their cows and the environment. But I think it's that attention to detail, consistency, that really drive these type of herds. Yeah, and, and I think that's a great yeah. Uh, you know, the, the cow's best day is if she's bored, right? Uh, yeah. Everything is the same, you know, milking right. time, feeding, so forth. So, you know, great point. In terms of uh, a reference uh, that you really go to uh, as, as we, you know, it's, it's fun to kind of recommend to the audience. There's a wide range from, you know, websites to textbooks to journals and so forth. But, you know, what, what are, what's one of your go-to references for dairy? I'd like to go to the um, American Dairy Science Association has a, uh, a program, SPAC, which is a compilation of all the different conference proceedings. So I usually go to conference proceedings like the Cornell, the Penn State, uh, tri-state those those are good starting points I think but there's a lot of good conferences around the world so I think conference proceedings right now are probably our key references that people are using because uh, they're the most up to date most current um, and they have cutting edge um, stuff so that's where I. That's usually where I go to start with conference proceedings. Larry, I think you're the first to mention that, and and I I really like that and appreciate that because, you know, where are we getting the most up to date information? You know, before Journal of Dairy Science or other publications, right? Invited speakers, um, either from industry, from uh, you know, uh, private sector, or or obviously from university. Um, you know, they're going to present some of that early work at conferences. And and unfortunately, those don't always get picked up to the same, you know, they're not a, a peer-reviewed publication. So um, I really like that. And, and, and that's a yeah. great opportunity for the audience. And um, uh, that's international also, correct? So then you have, right. you know, a range of not just U.S.-based, but work that's going on in other parts of the world. Right, you can pick up world. other parts of the world, too. Yeah, because there's some good work going on in different parts of the world also that we need to be aware of, yeah. A lot of the co-product work started out in Austria and Sweden to get people excited about that human edible protein, which is now getting attention in a lot of areas of the world, but started over in Europe, basically. And that's a great point, you know, uh, 
one, the industry is global. It's not local. Um, you know, there's, there's exports, imports, so forth. But I think also, you know, as we look at animal welfare, if we look at uh, my, my antimicrobial, antibiotic use, um, environmental uh, standards, you know, there, there seems to be that, uh, you know, often start in Europe and work its way to North America, Canada, uh, Mexico, and then, you know, uh, somewhat of the rest of the world. So, um, yeah, being on top of what's happening in, in, in the rest of the world is super important for, for our industry. And I, I, I think uh, really important that producers recognize that it's, uh, yeah. you know, th- think globally in terms of your business. And then, um you're you're more in retirement mode now, so I, I assume you have uh, other uh, hobbies and things going on. Uh, like to wrap up with, you know, any recent documentary, book, uh, something of interest that I think often we can we can take some of those concepts and relate them to to dairy also. But outside of dairy, outside of uh, uh, feeding cows, any any recommendations for for the audience? Well, I think everybody just has to find for themselves what is of interest to them. You know, we're doing a little bit of traveling that we didn't do before. Um, we're in the middle of a house remodeling right now. And we're doing some genealogy, and we got pictures from both sides of the families to sort through. So, you know, everybody has different ideas and different thoughts, but that's sort of what we're doing at this point in time. And, you know, spend more time with the grandkids too. So, you know, everybody has to find their niche, I guess. Great, great. No, I, I think, you know, that's obviously really important. And for those that are not on the retirement side of their career, still finding that time to, to disconnect a little bit and and, uh, and and think outside the box, I guess, think outside of our industry and, and what concepts uh, we could use from uh, either, you know, per- personal uh, well-being or, or other industries. Uh so, Larry, again, great to, to reconnect with you uh, after, you know, many, many years of, of, uh, of uh, being the uh, uh, mentee of, of many of your, uh, your research projects and, and your programs and, and your investigations in terms of, uh, especially in the Northeast during my time there. Um, so, uh, again, thank you uh, for the audience, Dr. Dr. Larry Chase. Uh, and uh, certainly if uh, any questions come up, uh, I'm sure we can get you uh, Larry's contact uh, yep. and email. That'll work. We can do that. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Um, thank you. You have a great afternoon. And uh, again, thanks for your time connecting. Okay. Uh, thanks, thanks to all. Thank you. And thanks to all for joining the Dairy Podcast Show. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at the help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.